Okay, it's time to finish up this series with a list of practical steps going forward. So we're going to get practical, but remember this is Keller. So he starts with something bigger than just concrete tactics. He makes a case for a new movement in Christianity. We'll start there after I give you the outline. Let's reflect for just a minute. In the previous article, Keller talked about facing upward. Revival is a work of God. And so we wait in dependence on his movement. But this closing piece talks a little bit more about our responsibility. Think of it like facing inward and facing outward. We need to face inward with a movement of Christianity that helps us understand the kind of community that we need to be in the midst of these influences. That's number one. Number two, we need to face outward with a a new kind of Christian uh, generous orthodoxy. So we'll get into some keys to a new movement of a Christian community mission. Then we'll get practical. We're going to outline a half dozen or more strategies towards renewal to help the church become more proactive. Here's the outline of the next few minutes. Number one, a community, building a community capable of a new movement. Number two, six keys to a new movement. Number three, closing comments. Let's get started. A community capable of a new movement in Christianity has a particular kind of identity. This shouldn't be surprising. It's a particular kind of identity clarified and centered on the essentials and on committed leaders with an effective pipeline for new leaders. That's a lot, but here it is. <laughs> essentials with commit, people committed to them and a way to, to, to grow up a new generation of people centered on those commitments. FPC is ahead on this point. We have clear essentials spelled out well in terms of our beliefs. Where we could use a little clarity is in creating a pathway where leaders get formed around these beliefs and how to apply them in the marketplace. Now, that's a mouthful, formed around these beliefs. Something is forming us. You know that. That influences the things that we center our life on, the things we make commitments to. That forms us. We form around our commitments. So we need two initiatives to help us uh, both in our community that forms us and in our leadership that helps form us. First, we need our church to be a place, a community, where people understand their call. Their call. We use all kinds of words for call. Words like vocation, profession. We're familiar with that. It goes back to this idea that there is a priesthood of all believers, that we're all called. Uh, You don't have to be in, quote, the ministry, unquote, to be called to ministry. Every member should know their gifts, heart, ability, personality, and experiences. Not only for mission, officially through the church, but for their own day-to-day ministry at work and at home. See, what we're talking about is just forming a kind of community that helps people identify that and form intentionally for that call. We need to create a church culture that values 
the kind of transparency that leads to growth in this respect, to be able to be honest about where our strengths and weaknesses are. We need a church culture where people have a common language for becoming more effective influences in the broader community, a common language. That's powerful when we're all understanding the same terms and categories. I mean, at FPC, we say, uh, worship, grow, and serve. We, we hope that people, that just sinks in and people understand, hey, these are basic commitments that we're all, but see, when you have a common language, then you're inviting people to form community around these core values. But it's hard to form around core values you haven't named. So that's why we need common language. That means people come to FPC to get equipped for their key roles. So that's number one. All right, number one, needing to be a place, a church, where we understand our call. Number two, we need to be willing to name those things that distinguish us as Christians from the practices of a drifting culture, okay? So I think we're all very, I'm, I'm sensing that our church is very willing and eager to name some of those things, but not to name them in such a way that is punitive towards people or saying that we're better but doing so with a sense of compassion and again, here's the word, generosity rather than shame and superiority. That means we need to know how to live both at our theological address of orthodoxy, but also at our cultural address that steers clear of the alienating, alienating attitudes and practices of fundamentalism. I hope this is starting to make more sense, starting to make sense in terms of the distinctive of an evangelical from a fundamentalist. For example, we need to be able to speak to any and every issue in terms of what we are for rather than just what we are against. The language of against is a reactive, emotional, uh, charged kind of language. The language of for is the language of vision. Imagine someone finding out you're a Christian <clears throat> and then trying to get you to say something about the latest flashpoint political issue, all right? Let's just say it's about a protected class of people or the permission to do something that previously, five minutes ago, we didn't have permission to do. And now suddenly we're all supposed to be uh, in favor of it. Now imagine that, that you recognize that this issue is going to be, you're going to be on the other side of this issue. Can you imagine, though, responding to that person in a way that helps cast a vision for the way that you are for the people who are dabbling in this or for the people who are uh, making this mistake out of a sense of compassion and vision for the way God has designed us to be? You can articulate your position in terms of a... <laughs> Not, not just saying, I am anti this practice, but I am for these people who are dabbling in this thing. So what if we learn how to tell people what distinguishes us, uh, what distinguishes Christianity what, in terms of what is good for them and not just in terms of uh, what we think is better than their position, that we're right and they're wrong. So Keller talks about uh, 
this in terms of shedding tears and showing grace. And people who advocate for a permissive culture claim the moral high ground because they think they're giving somebody something they want. They think they're being just or they're fighting for equity or equality. So this permissive culture arises out of a sense of justice, but we're, we're letting people do things that are bad for them. So it, we need to have some tears about that. And, you know, what, it breaks God's heart when people rebel, when people stray. It should break our heart as, as well. And to think long term, to have a vision. The Christian stands up for what's best for people, even with sorrow over unhealthy choices and always with a graceful tone. Now, I understand that some of these choices become codified into law and they put pressure on us. And we want, we are, we're very interested in figuring out how do we draw the line. There are appropriate ways of doing that as well. But if we're going to be able to speak influentially into those, those areas of education and politics and business, into the marketplace of ideas, then we need to have a regular cadence of tears and compassion and vision for what is best in human life. Keller looks at the 18th century for this. The evangelicals of the 18th century were so effective in shaping public policy. Uh, they had a new movement, a movement that culminated in the end of the slave trade. Now that's some serious influence. They influenced the mainstream powers. Why? Because they had a concern for A, a more just society, B, their own unity, and why they're pushing for a particular direction. In other words, they weren't sectarian in their approach, not divisive. C, they had a priority of relationships. D, they were Christian in content and in manner. In other words, they knew why they were going in a particular direction, and they knew how, and they wanted their how to line up with their why. The way they interacted mattered. E, they attracted talent because they were genuine people, genuine in their commitments. And F, they were focused on goals, both spiritual and social. So spiritual renewal and social justice. From here, Keller turns to six practical keys to a new movement of generous orthodoxy. So this is the final section where he's getting very practical. And there's so much to this, these eight different strategies, but I'm really just going to Give, you, give them to you in bullet form and make one quick comment about each one. So here are the eight recommendations going forward. Number one, church planting. Church planting. Right now we plant about three to 4,000 churches a year in America. We need to double it in his recommendation. Number two, discipleship that can stand up to the influences of the culture. Culture wants to catechize our kids. They wants to form them in their character. We need a spiritual formation that is intellectual and emotional, emotionally compelling and intellectually honest. Number three, post-Christian evangelism. This is a nod back at what we talked about last time, that we need to have a missionary encounter 
with our culture and not just presume upon Judeo-Christian identity going forward, momentum from the past. Post-Christian evangelism has an apologetic or an approach that's more about awe than defensiveness. Number four, a justice network. That means becoming more proactive and collaborative instead of just waiting for the next crisis and then trying to run around to the front of it to lead it. It means being willing to have a multi-ethnic approach to problem solving in our city. Number five, a faith work network. Does that make sense? Faith work. You know, how does your faith express itself at work? I'm not talking about just evangelism at work. He's talking about integrity, and he's talking about winsomeness. He's talking about vision, a faith work network. Church is a place to equip people for excellence in leadership in their fields. Number six, the Christian Mind Project, which is essentially better mentoring when they're young, better think tanks when they're older, and better institutions to sustain a Christian mind project. Number seven, a new leadership pipeline. I referenced referenced this in the beginning. From campus ministries to a more integrated approach to seminary education, even even the the think tanks, uh, the faith work networks, all of this can be lined up to create a new leadership pipeline. And number eight, Christian philanthropy. That means not just making allocations, but leveraging social capital for the common good. Clarify the goals of big donors and understand who is enabling what projects that we can get behind once they're funded. Well, after all this strategy talk, I want to leave you with, uh, with one closing thought. It's been, a, it's, it's been a series that has turned over a lot of rocks. It's been a series that's named a lot of things. It's a lot to think about. And it might be a little discouraging to think, wow, we've got to figure all this out. Well, honestly, it's important that we do some good thinking, some good soul searching, and make some clear plans. But here is the closing thought. Unless the Lord builds a house, the builders labor in vain. So let's, let's take that with us as we think about how to be a more effective local church in an increasing, increasingly pluralistic culture as we learn how to continue to face upward and inward and outward, remembering that unless the Lord builds a house, the builders labor in vain. I'm Tim Filston. Thanks for being a part of this. Thank you.